Hi, this is Francesca Morfini, and you're listening to Femme Studios. Here you'll find a series of conversations with female entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders who have carved their own path and are now putting a dent in and beyond our city. I sat down with Berkeley Poole in November of 2019 when she was the vice president and creative director at Tokyo Smoke, one of Canada's most well-known cannabis brand and retail stores. Since then, Berkeley has moved on to be the creative director at Whitman Emerson, a design studio in Toronto. Berkeley is no stranger to creative work. Before Tokyo Smoke, she worked on brand books for Calvin Klein and Tom Ford. She was on the creative team at Barney's, and at that point was also starting her own magazine called Adult. We touch on what being a creative entails and what her process looks like, especially when it comes to visually recreating what the cannabis experience feels like. This is an episode for anyone who's interested in diving into a creative career path. By listening to this episode, you'll gain some tips and insight into the minds of one of the creative leaders in Toronto and, in my opinion, Canada, too. Yeah, so I think, you know, it's somewhat confusing for a lot of people because they're like, oh, how does like design and creative direction tie in with a cannabis brand? Um, But I've been with Tokyo Smoke for three years and like really since its infancy and have built the brand from scratch. And so it was interesting when it started because there wasn't really this like brand or design forward approach to cannabis. You know, it was a lot of farmers and growers and things like that, but that ultimately didn't seem like something that would resonate with an audience or like, you know, be able to build a culture around cannabis. So on the daily, I mean, I think about why people smoke weed and why they buy it, how they buy it, where they buy it. And that means creating ad campaigns, uh, determining photo direction, product design for cannabis accessories, uh, the design of our retail stores, mm, the design of all of our marketing collateral. I mean, it's a very all-encompassing role, but really building and overseeing a team of creatives that works across our cannabis brands as well. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now that we know what you do today, yeah. let's go back to the beginning, and I want to hear what, when you were growing up, you wanted to be as a kid. I mean, I think initially I actually wanted to be a vet because I really liked animals and I think it was also just kind of like one of those stereotypical things that a lot of kids want to be. However, you know, understanding that it involved a little more like perhaps gore in some ways, that didn't really appeal to me, but I was certainly always creative. Love drawing, sculpture, kind of creating um, random creative projects for my friends and I to do. Started a little art attack club, if you remember that show. Yes, um, I do very well. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And so I think, you know, it was actually my mom who really influenced me to go into design and creative direction. Initially, when I was applying for universities, I was like, oh, I want to go into marketing because I didn't really have a grasp on, you know, what design was and I wanted to be creative, but I also liked the commerce side of things. Um, and she was the one who like gently nudged me towards it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sweet. So then when, when the time came to decide what you were going to study in school, mm-hmm. how did you come to that decision? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it was actually, I was like really dead set on going to Western and being in that marketing program. And I think it's like so laughable for me now and like my personality, I just obviously would have hated it. Like no knocks against Western in any regard. Um, But yeah, I just like, I really needed to be in a creative industry for sure. And my parents own their own photo studio and they do more commercial photography. Um, But they were the ones that, you know, obviously work with like art directors and creative directors all the time. And they saw that, you know, I'd have the ability to be creative, but also make a living and like build all of these things and bring it all together. So then you chose to do design. Yes. Yeah. And I had interviewed um, at OCAD and... Well, I mean, a few schools, but had narrowed it down to OCAD and York. But I just loved the design program at York. Um, I just loved the degree of like passion and um, just like the really high standard they had for design and typography there. And that's what really drew me in and like ultimately made me decide that I wanted to study there. What was your favorite thing about that program while you were a student? I mean, their love for typography, they were just like so amped about it, so technical about it. And I thought that was really cool. Um, They also had a one-year exchange program to the Bauhaus University, which I ended up doing. Mm -hmm. And I loved that because while York was incredible in creating designers that made really professional work and um, really technically sound work. I love the Bauhaus because it was all about concept and ideation and more of that side of things and a little more free in that regard. So the two really complemented each other. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I guess we can get into this a little later, but I'd be interested to know how that then influenced your work today. Yeah, I mean, I think that the Bauhaus approach really influenced me in a lot of ways in terms of being very concept driven with my work and very process oriented as well. Um, And I think that's something I really try to pass on to my designers and my team now in that not thinking so much about what the end result will be because I think that can really, you know, limit things in a lot of ways and limit the possibilities of all the things that could happen. So yeah, it's just really about like spending time in that creative zone at the outset of a project to just really see where it could take you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when you when you graduated and you finished your program that time can be very confusing oh yes yeah how did you go about it what happened yeah how did you land your first job so i actually got a job offer uh from the grad show that we had where you know everyone presents their work and I just went right into the workforce and was working at this small ad agency and I was just mostly creating web banners and I mean even packaging for insured drinks and things like that and it wasn't, um, oh what was it called? I mean, I can't even remember now actually. It was a really small agency though. but. But yeah, I was just totally losing my mind because it was so boring. And I think, you know, every experience is valuable in that even that experience taught me a lot about like what I didn't want to do and the type of environment that wasn't stimulating for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then what was your next move? Like, you know, you figured out what you didn't like. Right. So what did you like? Yeah. So then a friend of mine said, Hey, a position's coming free at MTV soon because someone's going to be leaving. Um, so you should start putting together some motion 
design work. And I was like, well, fuck, that sounds amazing, but I don't have any motion design work. And it was definitely something I was interested in. And I love that MTV was so experimental. And this is MTV Canada and just like so creative. And I knew a lot of people who had worked there before and it just seemed like a place where you could really thrive as a creative. So I just like spent the next month only working on motion projects and put four together and totally lost my mind because like teaching yourself the programs and trying to do great creative work at the same time. Um, And I think for anyone who like starts to learn motion, it's like, a very steep learning curve. Uh, But yeah, I just went about it and ended up getting the job there. And that was an incredible experience as well. It was very similar to school in a lot of ways in terms of like you really needing to be um, a self-starter and self-motivated in your work, but also getting like free reign creatively. What is motion work? Oh, yeah. So um, all of the show intros and bumpers and things like that. So motion graphics are just like moving graphics. Um, The like fun, weird animations that I'll play. So you didn't learn how to do this in school? No, no. I mean, it was a possibility there, but it wasn't something I pursued in school. Mm. Yeah. Did you feel like that program did equip you to, to do the work that you were then doing at MTV? Uh, It did in a lot of ways because, you know, it was about more of the fundamentals in design, you know, in terms of like composition and color and just like design theory and all of that. And I think that really expands your thinking in a broader sense. Um, But yeah, when it came to like the finer points of it, I think I had done one motion project before actually in school, but I hadn't really explored it greatly. So it was pretty much a fully self-taught process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so you're working in the industry, and how long were you at MTV for before you moved on? Um, gosh, I can't really remember now. It was like a while back, maybe like two years. Okay. Yeah. And then at some point, while you are, you know, you have a full-time job, Mm -hmm. you start start a side project Mm -hmm. called Adult Magazine. Yeah. So tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so actually from MTV moved to New York to work at V Magazine. So that was incredibly exciting because, you know, I always imagined that I would work in fashion at some point and those opportunities weren't really available here in Toronto, or I mean, not as much. And my mom was a fashion stylist growing up. So it just felt like, you know, right to be in that industry. And it was very much the devil wears Prada experience. Really? Yeah, okay. it was intense. Um, oh my God, like, you know, there was a lot of unspoken rules in the office. Like you couldn't really eat openly. Um, you know, often people were commenting on my weight and, you know, saying like, what are you a size 26? And that was really confusing for me. Cause I was like, is 26 bad? Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, what's the line in the film? It's like four is the new six and six is the new eight. Yeah, something. no, that was exactly it. Um, yeah. So that was kind of hilarious. I mean, I just thought it was funny, but there was certainly a lot of people that took it really seriously. Mm-hmm. which is kind of sad um how did how are you were you able to take things so lightheartedly because i would assume that you know it's a big move you're yeah. still in the beginning of your career so mm-hmm. you're really easily influenced oh for sure and it's very easy to feel small at that point oh yeah well. so how did you deal with that I mean, it just like, it ultimately is so absurd. And I think that I have a very healthy relationship with food. So I was like, okay about it. But I was just like, yeesh, this is weird. Um, But the funniest was like one day when I was just like, 
eating a cookie at my desk and my creative director turned to me and he was like, oink, oink, Berkeley. And I was like, okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that is, I, I feel like that would not slide today. Yeah, no, it wouldn't. Like the culture's totally changed. Um, but I mean, I think, you know, I, I think about the positive side of things and I certainly got an incredible crash course in like photography and um, an editorial design because those sides of V Magazine were just like invaluable. You know, that a lot of things you could just see from like observing in that environment can't even really be taught so that part was really cool and that's what I took away from it less so like any kind of yeah desire for fad diets or anything like that there were so many juice cleanses that happened and like um like as a general trend yeah I don't know it must have been but like yeah especially during but just before fashion week was like the worst time in the office because everyone had not eaten for a while and they were just like super ragey but yeah again teaches you a lot about like things that you don't want to be yeah i can see that yeah what were you doing exactly there uh so you know, editorial design my position there was designer so doing some like light art direction in terms of starting to learn how to art direct on smaller shoots um but really you know, laid out the magazine, the team, the creative team across V Magazine, Visionaire, and V Man was only three people. Uh, so we were laying out all of the magazines, coming up with concepts for type, designing type, uh, all that sort of thing. It sounds like the coolest job ever. <laughs> yeah. But I learned that the jobs that look the most glamorous are often the least. Oh, yes. So what are the things that you wish people would know about? that industry about that job I mean well fashion generally is pretty shit pay um you know it's just the nature of it and certainly now people get it more with all the publications that have closed um but you know I just went into it kind of knowing what it would be you know it was going to be an education in a lot of ways and that's what it was Uh, but it was also the the springboard for adults in a lot of ways you know and I think Sarah had also written a lot in several fashion publications. And so what we really endeavored to do was create something that felt more meaningful. And certainly there's a lot of like vapid written content and even visual content in fashion magazines, but we wanted to create something that felt more intimate and went beneath just like the surface level of things. And it was just interesting to explore erotica in a way that it hadn't really been done before, you know, from the view of two women ultimately, which was like unheard of at that time. And just exploring all the things that it could be in a way that like now is just way more diverse and interesting. I feel like it was almost ahead of it, too ahead of its time. I agree. Yeah. It was like yeah. too soon. People weren't ready for it. Oh, no, they fully weren't. The yeah. concept is I mean, it was obviously compelling then when you were thinking about it, but it's super compelling now. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. What, um, what were the themes that you guys chose to explore when you started? Oh my gosh. It was just like, almost nothing was off limits. I mean, there was articles about psychics and aura readers. Um, there was articles about, you know, the trans experience. And there's articles about Satanists, you know, I'll never forget 
doing the photo shoot for the Satanist piece um, at this like very esteemed Satanist apartment in the Upper East Side in New York. And it was wild. He just had all of these like tchotchkes everywhere where it was like real shrunken heads and vials of weird liquids and elixirs and things like that. But ultimately learned that, you know, for a lot of Satanists, he was an older gentleman as well. And for a lot of Satanists, it was just about having a community when, you know, he was really young and gay in Hollywood and felt like he had no home there. And so turned to Satanism and it wasn't all of the associations that I think people typically think of. So that was really illuminating and funny too, that I had a cold at the time and in his apartment and he offered me zinc and I was like, should I take this? Is it actually just like pressed bat wing? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's kind of an eerie experience from the sounds of it. Yeah, it totally was. Uh, okay, and you were doing this while you had a full-time job, so tell me about juggling a million things. Yeah, well, it's very much like the New York culture as well, where it's just like, you know, make a name for yourself, put out work that you're super proud of. Um, and I think that paired with like my Asian work ethic just meant that I was totally grinding. Um, but I mean, that was like the time for it as well. you know, we were really excited about what we were making and getting a really positive response to adults in particular and, you know, doing work that we were really passionate about. Was there any specific story that you're super proud of? Oh gosh. I mean, truly, I think it was the compilation of everything and, it was just like a tome, you know, like I think you look at most magazines and they're actually quite thin, but we just invested a lot into every piece and how it all felt together. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then going back to your like full-time hustle, you at some point transferred to Barney's Yeah. and you're doing art direction there. Yeah. I actually even had a brief interlude at an ad agency. Oh, I worked okay, there for six that. months. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, another kind of situation where I was like extremely grinding and it was like, you know, initially when I got there, I was like, this is incredible. After V, I got like a huge salary bump, um, and you know, had all of these kind of like new luxuries that I hadn't experienced before, you know, had my own seamless account so I could just order lunch and dinner all the time to the office and had a company car to take me home at night. But you start to realize that you have those things because you're living at the office. And so, yeah, that was just a pretty extreme situation. But there was cool. Or that whole experience was interesting in that um, I was working on the identity and brand books for Calvin Klein and Karl Lagerfeld and things like that. So, again, the types of clients that, you know, you wouldn't traditionally see working in Canada and just really interesting to work on the more like foundational side of those brands. I'm surprised that they would hand that work off to an agency. Yeah, I mean, it's an agency that handles a lot of fashion clients. Laird and Partners, you know, also did Tom Ford and Burberry and things like that. How, what was that like to try and, you know, you came up with these concepts for the brand, mm-hmm. but then you, you had to work on other concepts for you know, potentially competing brands Mm -hmm. within the same day, maybe. Yeah. So how did you juggle that? I mean, it's interesting because ultimately for fashion, a lot of it seems 
self-referential in a lot of ways and like cyclical in terms of like the themes and trends that emerge so you know visually I think there was some differentiation but I don't know if the concepts really went so much deeper than that I mean working on the brand books that's where I really got to define more distinct vision um But yeah, again, that's like what drew me to adult and what drew me to places like Barney's was getting to be more experimental and getting to go deeper with more of the creative strategy side of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, you know, we're talking about these concepts like they're, you know, highly, highly creative. But at Mm -hmm. the end of the day, it's retail and it's all about money. Yeah, exactly. So how how do you convert that, you know, starting from creative and then trying to find an ROI and everything. Yeah, I mean, I think what I always look at is like, you know, what's the human motivation or what's the behavior that we're trying to alter? Because to me, that's getting more at the heart of things. And that's like the blood and muscle tissue beneath the skin. And I ultimately just think that's like far more interesting. And yeah, I can always translate that that back after into like brand and marketing speak so that, you know, the brand team is on board. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I think it's about kind of dissecting things in a more elemental way so that it's more interesting. Can you give me an example? Yeah, let's see. Um, oh, so recently we created a campaign for Tokyo Smoke around terpenes. And so terpenes are the scent and flavor notes that are naturally occurring in cannabis. And it's also thought that they have this entourage effect as well. So... You know, if you have a cannabis strain that has the linalool terpene, which, you know, has a lot of lavender notes and you pair that or it's occurring in a strain that's also perhaps like indica leaning, you could have this whole experience that's just like all that much more relaxing um, and just like chilled and lovely and lush. And, you know, I saw the way a lot of other cannabis companies were creating visuals for terpenes. And it was ultimately like this complex periodic table that explained all the terpenes and the notes and this and that. And that to me didn't speak to the actual experience, which is all about scent and flavor and this entourage effect. So ultimately... You know, I started looking to people like Maya Lin, this architect that does these beautiful um, sculptures with embedded in a landscape or sometimes actually affecting the landscape or Edward Bertinsky and how he photographs landscapes. And I think the common thread there is like there's this visceral nature to nature. And so that was something we brought into the can- this campaign work. And it's all of these um looping worlds that i mean it's kind of hard to describe them something that's very visual but it's these looping animations of these worlds and they're very abstract but they're super vibey and then you see the elements of the terpenes in there as well so you have like these floating lavender balls that are taking you through this misty and hazy landscape and you know when in cannabis when there's a lot you can't say about terpenes or about cannabis specifically i think it's all that much more important that you really elicit a reaction and you just make people feel something yeah i think i've actually seen have they been released yet yeah so they were playing um at hot docs and at a few events that we had as well oh and at the budweiser stage so we had an installation there did you do any snippets on social we might have at some point i I, 
right yeah it's yeah. possible there's always some, you guys have some really great um visuals on social yeah yeah okay so wait going back to Barney's for a yes second. yeah uh I, tell me like what what does an art director do at Barney's mm-hmm. yeah so I mean a whole diversity of things and that's why I loved it was working on the concepts and the look and feel for the store windows which you know for Barney's especially were quite famous and working on the typography and the layout of their in-house magazine the window Um, also working on you know all of their branding and in-house collateral as well as like more external facing collateral Uh, working on product collabs they did as well so that was really fun and yeah oh and a lot of um projects on the more like xm and event side because they had so many things of that nature so these like really fantastical pop-ups we did this whole you know fake gas station for anya hindmarsh and all of her work has like basically these emojis and things like that so that was really fun but working with really incredible collaborators, I mean, we created a holiday campaign with Baz Luhrmann, the director of Moulin Rouge and The Great Gatsby. And so that was incredible because obviously he's such a visionary, but he's so collaborative as well. And I mean, so fitting in that I think his whole body of work is basically a Christmas window in and of itself. So that was really wild and fun. What were your biggest takeaways from You know, what I loved about the creative director there, Dennis uh, Friedman, was that he really saw the importance of bringing in artistic collaborators into everything that Barney's did. So, you know, doing installations with Alex Katz, who's an incredible painter, um, or the super lifelike and shocking windows that we did for Hood by Air, you know, and having these like fully life-size um, hyper-realistic models that looked like they stepped right off of the Paris runway show in the windows with like, I don't know if you remember the collection, but when they walked in Paris, they also had these glittery dental dams that like fixed their mouth open in a really weird and startling way. Um, but yeah, just bringing around this like whole community of artists and collaborators so that, you know, ultimately these people are like building the culture of your brand with you. Yeah, it's, it's a feeling like you were saying about mm-hmm. the Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think that's something I've brought into Tokyo Smoke now. It's like a brand to me, I think, to have any relevancy today it needs to be so much more than like a logo or a color palette. And I feel like people, di- designers especially, are like so preoccupied with creating like a really dialed in style guide. But, you know, what's life beyond the style guide and how does that resonate with your audience? Totally. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Tokyo Smoke, because that's your next stop, right? Yeah, yeah. So you're back in Canada. Yeah. You're going into cannabis. Mm-hmm. You're at the early stages of cannabis, so no one actually knows what is happening, yeah. right? Yeah, no, for sure. So what was that like? Yeah, I mean, I started with Tokyo Smoke well before legalization was even a thing. Uh, but I just thought it was so interesting because, you know, it was one cafe at the time and the founder, Alan Gertner, was like, you know, we're going to be this massive brand and we're going to have all these stores. And I think a lot of people would think that he was crazy. But for me, I just thought, okay, cannabis is such a raw opportunity, you know, amazing as a designer and a creative because I can build this brand from scratch, which, you know, you seldom have the opportunity to do. 
and beyond that have the ability to like be in a new industry and also influence and shape that industry i think those are just the sorts of things and opportunities that don't come along very often so when you started the job at tokyo smoke Mm -hmm. you're going into a completely new company that has no real brand identity and you're going into a completely new industry that you know doesn't have any history it's an unprecedented situation so what's the first thing that you decide to do Yeah, so the very first thing I remember was creating a brand book for Tokyo Smoke so that there was like a clearer sense of just more of like the foundational things of the brand, you know, typography, color palette, all those things. But really the next big step for me was photography. And that's because I felt like it was really important to visualize the cannabis experience, but through a new lens. So, I mean, at that time, this was also like before all of the legal restrictions we have now, but, you know, showing more diversity in like the types of consumers there were in cannabis and the sort of situations and environments that people would enjoy and showing that it wasn't all just about like this burnt out stoner, you know, getting totally zooted in his parents' basement and eating Cheetos. Okay, great. So you've, you've had experience in so many different jobs and you've kind of hopped from overall similar industry, but Mm -hmm. different industries also. Right. How did you go about starting all these new jobs? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the common thread for adults in Tokyo Smoke in particular was working with comment, content that was really stigmatized. And that was just so fascinating to me because it felt like there was a lot there to explore on the content and concept side. Whereas, you know, on the fashion side of things, again, it was like a lot of themes that were self-referential and cyclical. And I just wanted to explore new terrain and terrain that kind of was challenging for people you know cannabis was awesome to me because there was a lot of like psychological and emotional risks there for people but i saw all of the positive attributes to it so i just thought that it was the most interesting thing and just studying where these things would converge do you feel like you've you've actually destigmatized cannabis I mean, not wholly. And I think that, you know, we're more and more all the time just understanding how huge our audience is in a lot of ways, you know, huge, exactly, in terms of like, you know, the types of experiences people have had with cannabis. Are they totally new to it? Are they returning to it? Do they only consume when it's like offered to them through a friend? And huge diversity in socioeconomic background, the racial background, the age, and all of these things. And again, that's why it's so fascinating to me in that it's really wide open in a lot of ways. What would you say is your biggest challenge in working in cannabis today? three years in or two years in? Yeah, I mean, we kind of touched on it earlier, but just like how unstructured it is. So, you know, so much of my job is also just building process and structure, especially being the lead of a creative department. And certainly I think I would love to spend more time just focused on the creative side of things. And in the early days of the brand, a lot of what I did was kind of cost and concept justification for creative endeavors and that was really interesting 
because, you know, explaining creative concepts to people and justifying costs for photo shoots and things like that is really hard when you're speaking to people who come from a tech background or a business background, because you have to find some middle ground there um, because it's just so foreign to them. Especially when you're talking about an audience that is completely undefined. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And these are people that love data and numbers. They want things substantiated, but that's just not a luxury we have in cannabis. So how can you find like other ways to get them on board? Do you find that now that, you know, it's been legalized for a year and you've been in the industry for a little bit longer, you have some data to work with? And if so, do you actually use it? I mean, we don't hugely because, you know, a lot of it is kind of unreliable too. You know, even getting data on like how many people purchase through legal avenues. But then a lot of those people don't understand that like the cafes that they're going to or the weed delivery service that they order from actually aren't legal. So it just kind of undermines everything that you're trying to do. Totally. You've you've had so much success in your career and I'm curious to know what is the one quality or thing that you did, which without it, you wouldn't be able to be where you are today. I mean, I think the main thing for me was grit and I love the book as well by Angela Duckworth. And it's something that really resonates with me a lot. And, you know, even hearing from various people now about like, oh, you've been so successful in my mind, like I'll never be successful in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, there's certainly like counterproductive attributes to that, but I love this idea of always just like really working on refining your craft and it's this endless pursuit in a lot of ways. And that to me is the characteristics that I think a lot of the most successful people have, you know, it isn't raw talent and it's really just about how much you apply yourself and over time and how dedicated you are to really just building your craft. Do you have times where you're really Oh my God. Yes. Especially when I'm like, you know, especially in my role now when I'm just like looking at endless Excel charts, those are just like the bane of my existence. Um, and I truly admire people who are incredible at laying things out in Excel and like doing those formulas. Like those are a huge mystery to me. Um, but yeah, I think those things are just like, ugh, they're just a nightmare, honestly. What do you do when, when you're staring at an Excel sheet, but also have to come up with a new creative concept. Oh gosh. I mean, I truly love having the opportunity to do creative work because I think more and more, a lot of my role now has become like more managerial in a lot of ways and like setting up process for the department and like enabling and facilitating the rest of the department to be creative. But when I need to step away and get inspiration, I mean, for me, it used to be going to galleries and things like that, which I still definitely enjoy. But lately, I've just loved being in nature, and I find that to be rejuvenating and inspiring in ways that I hadn't really experienced before. Is there anywhere you like to go in particular? Uh, lately, it's been High Park, you know, because it's right here in Toronto. It's super close to where I live. And every time I go, I feel like I unearth this like new magical side to it. Whether, yeah, it's like whether it's the zoo or even like the off-leash dog area, which sounds so random, but it's like you're in a forest and then you just randomly have all these like dogs ripping through and they're like the happiest dogs you've ever seen. Yeah, they're the happiest. Yeah. They really are. 
what do you look for in the people that you work with? Like how you decide who's going to be on your team? Right. I mean, yeah, right now we're also just growing exponentially. So I interview on average like two to three times a day new candidates, which is really insane. That is completely insane. Yeah. Like half time. Just a recruiter. Yeah, Yeah, no, totally. And yeah, I think there's a lot of things I look for. Um, But I mean, more than anything, I just really want to see people who are passionate about their work. Because I think that translates into so many great attributes that are awesome for like, you know, morale in our department, but also just building a great creative team because it means that they'll be hardworking. It means that they'll care about what they do and, you know, really looking for people with sensitivity as well, you know, both emotional sensitivity and awareness, um, because I think that's so important, but also just sensitivity to all of the nuances of what we do. And I think with cannabis especially, it's so intangible and complex. And so hiring to work on a cannabis creative team has been especially challenging uh, because there aren't like, you know, a lot of references for how cannabis campaigns should look. And, you know, the ones that exist, I'm, I'm not really interested in. And so just really interested in people as well who can be like really innovative thinkers and I think you know seeing parts of myself in them hopefully and that they would be really process driven and really concept oriented as well speaking of sensitivity Mm -hmm. the creative industry is very special in that Mm -hmm. because you need to find a way to give people feedback on work that can oftentimes be so closely tied to their persona oh my god yes it's so hard yeah so how do you do that Um, I mean, honestly, I'm just like learning and trying to grow all the time. I wouldn't say that I'm like masterful at it, especially on the days when like I'm really stressed out and burnt out, you know, I think it's really hard, but I really try to remember what it feels like to get feedback as well. And I think that, you know, it's really important that they learn and grow as designers, but also develop a thicker skin you know because ultimately they're receiving feedback from like all of the other teams as well so it's important that it is direct and that it is understood but of course delivered with a degree of sensitivity as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right what advice would you give your younger self oh my gosh i mean i think the biggest thing and this is something i'm still working on is that i just like grind too hard and will really sacrifice everything in my life for work. And it's because ultimately, like, I got into a profession that I'm passionate about and that I love and that is really satisfying in a lot of ways. But as much as people are like, work-life balance, it's like, it's really true. You do need it. And especially as a creative, I mean, you're like a rubber band and you can't be stretched endlessly, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, Amy Patel, we interviewed for season Mm-hmm. said the same thing mm-hmm. and my response to her was do you think you would have been this successful had you not done that grind and not had yeah. those boundaries right yeah I mean I think that's a really good question and it's something that I've thought about a lot because you know on weekends where my friends were going on trips and going to the Hamptons I was working on adult with Sarah and there's certainly been a lot of times with Tokyo Smoke where again like kind of 
would overlook, you know, going to the gym or doing things like that just to work. Um, but I think that, you know, what I've started to appreciate more is that I need to have like a little more space to breathe in my life just so, yeah, you're not becoming like totally burnt out either. And I think for women, especially it's like, for me, it's never just about the job and it's not just about the work. I'm like constantly trying to like think of ways that I can like improve things for the people on my team and just like investing a lot of time and energy there. Um, so just needing to find ways where it's like, okay, there's like that old saying about like, oh, well, you can't like give anything if your cup, cup is empty. And I think it's so true. Um, and I mean, maybe that's something that you like really start to think more seriously about in your thirties as well. What are the things that you have implemented with your team that have, uh, have proved to be really fulfilling? I mean, it's often even just like the simplest things. Um, and even just rethinking team building activities and things like that, you know, this week, uh, took them for uh, a private guided meditation and sound bath because I mean sound baths are something we've done at Tokyo Smoke for a while. We haven't done them so much recently, but I personally love them. <laughs> you know, I'd done them a lot in New York, and I just think that they're so rejuvenating and inspiring, especially for creatives. Because first of all, they're really relaxing, and you get this like weird resonant sound in your body that's just very physical. And then beyond that, you get really interesting visuals as well. And so I just loved hearing about like the little journey and almost like pseudo trip that each of my employees went on. I thought that was really lovely and special. And I love thinking of ways that we can like hang out together and just get more inspired that like don't involve drinking all the time as well. And so even in the summer, we had um, one day that we called weed camp where we just went to the park and had a lot of like basically summer camp style games, but it was so fun. Oh, cool. Yeah. I love that. Mm-hmm. All right. To finish off, mm-hmm. I want to ask you what your favorite spots in Toronto are. Oh, um, I mean, a lot of them are food oriented because I love food much to the dismay of all of my ex coworkers at B Magazine. <laughs> nice. I love that. Um, but I mean, my number one spot for sure is Crown Princess. And so I love dim sum. That's something I missed in New York a lot. It's like, yeah, they have Chinese food, but it's not as good as, in, as it is in Toronto. So I always take friends there. Um, I love 416. That's just like a go-to for me. And um, High Park, I mean, I mentioned it just now, but it's like a place that I go to more and more recently because it does have like this magical quality to it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the super thoughtful questions. <laughs>